I love, you know what I love about Bitcoin is that it keeps demolishing all of these narratives that we cook up. You know, it's like we put up a chart, back to flow. It's like, boom, it's gone. Inflation hedge, boom, it's gone. And you actually have to think, you have to think like, what are the threats here? What's the upside here? What's the downside? What does it mean to be a Bitcoiner? You can't just fall back on the shibboleths. And like, I love it that Bitcoin is constantly like reality is kind of shocking the dogma constantly with new data that's forcing it to update. This is the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast, a show where average Joe firefighters explore the most important monetary technology of the 21st century. We talk Bitcoin, we talk finance, and we talk shit. Today we are joined by Troy Cross, professor of philosophy and humanities at Reed College. Troy works on questions of knowledge and reality. It's not surprising that he has been drawn to Bitcoin. We get philosophical on this one, discussing Christian orthodoxy, human tribalism, death, human nature, and artificial intelligence. Troy is the professor we all wish we had. A man of ideas, minus the hubris. No bullshit. When we parse BS from Signal, we immediately think about cold storage. Cold storage with a cold card Mark IV is the ultimate way to call bullshit and get pure signal from the most trusted monetary system in existence. With the Mark IV, you are plugged directly into Bitcoin, and you know with absolute certainty that you own your Bitcoin. We direct everyone we care about to cold store their Bitcoin with a Mark IV because CoinKite is no bullshit, all signal. Cold storing with a Mark IV is the apex of ownership and security. While you're at it, check out the new Q1 from CoinKite. This is a Mark IV on steroids, basically the perfect device. Use code BCB for 5% off a Mark IV or check out our affiliate link in the show notes for 5% off anything in the CoinKite store. Join us at the Bitcoin conference in Miami this May. Dan and I are planning on being there and we look forward to hanging out with our listeners. Get tickets ASAP because the price increases the longer you wait. Use code BCB23 to get 10% off your Bitcoin Miami tickets. Troy, welcome on the show, man. We just went for a while here before clicking record, and man, are we excited to have you. We've already made some connections. Uh, we just found out you went to Wheaton College. I did as well, and we've been talking, jiving a little bit on um, our complicated relationship with Christianity and what it represents in our life, and you were just talking about family and belonging. Uh I know we're kind of, we, we just called the time out, but pick up where, where that idea was and, and we can go from there. And we're going to start light here, folks. Real yeah. light off the bat. <laughs> Why not, dude? Yeah. Yeah. Well, first of all, you know, thanks for having me on, Dan and Josh. And yeah, we had a great conversation just now. Sorry, audience. It's probably not going to be quite as good as what just happened. That's often the way it is, right? <laughs> yep. um, but yeah, starting heavy. Uh, yeah. You know, my grandparents just had this kind of mores of like not talking about politics and religion. And I was always like, why would you not talk about this stuff? It's the most important stuff. It's the most interesting stuff. Why would you talk about the weather and all this? You know, my grandparents are always talking about what I would consider just stuff that doesn't matter at all. Now that I'm older, I get it. I get it. Right. Like, Political discussions lead to yeah uh, falling out in the it, it, especially and, in the climate we're in today. I it, mean, it's exactly. it's ultra dangerous to talk about those things today with a stranger. 
Totally. Exactly. Exactly. And uh, yeah, the older I get in the same, uh, same to a lesser extent for religion, well, in some ways, politics has become religion. Yes. And, um, and it's like, now I really appreciate their wisdom. They navigated life and they had so many friends and it's not an accident that they didn't really talk about these things overtly, although they were deeply religious people, although they had strong political views, you know, it wasn't their opener. And it, that, that meant that they could just mesh seamlessly into a community. I'm like, yeah, it's something like generationally we've like lost this art of just talking stuff that doesn't matter, mm. but all remaining friends somehow and building a community together i have so much respect for them the older i get but back to your point yeah dan i was amazed to learn that you went to wheaton college where i went wheaton is a uh evangelical non-denominational christian liberal arts college you know sort of prides itself on being sort of the elite of that category uh, but it is it is a, str- a place with a strong religious identity and mission for sure right? for christ in his kingdom right that's the mission of anyway it, it it's a small college two thousand students found out about it because i know you guys are in the chicago area and that's where i went to college uh wheaton is just outside chicago and yeah dan and i were discussing sort of the community that you get embedded in along with mm. an ideology and a belief system you know so if you start to doubt that belief system or walk away from it in any respect, it threatens all the relationships that you're embedded in. And those relationships are the most important thing in life. Relationships to your your friends and family, especially family. It's Wheaton is a special place in that it really accommodates a deep searching kind of soul. Mm. Uh, you're allowed to probe into questions uh, of the foundations of your faith. You know, we have a, the, the creeds of Christianity. You're, you're encouraged to, to doubt, to push into the cutting edge of science where it butts up against uh, Christian Orthodox belief. If it does, to think about that intersection. Uh, you're encouraged to, to read the great philosophers, including those who, you know, uh, are anti-religious or claim to debunk Christianity, right? You're encouraged to do all that. And yet it's also a place with a deeply religious identity. And I personally, while it was painful to go through that process, that I thrived in that environment. Troy, I, so, you know, before we clicked record, we were, we were just hinting at some of our journey and I'm looking forward to getting to know you better, man, because we were saying the crossover of two Wheaties and Bitcoin is, is rare for sure. Extremely. Um, I do have a lot of respect and affinity still for Wheaton college. There's a, a much of it that from a, from an ideological, uh, worldview standpoint, I, I no longer align with, but I do really respect. And, and I was a double major there, uh, rhetoric communication and biblical and theological studies. Um, I do respect the Bible and theology department in the sense that they do spend a lot of time, effort, and energy teaching students how to think. But at the end of the day, true interrogation of one's faith or worldview or viewpoint can't really have a destination in mind. And as I sort of started peeling back that onion, I did not arrive at the destination I was expecting when I declared that major. 
and it it really sent my my life, my career, my vocation, my family in a in a totally dissimilar direction from what they were expecting and what I was expecting. And I'm I haven't arrived anywhere. I'm very much still in the gray. And I think I'm I'm at a phase in my life here in my mid 30s where I think with a, on a lot of topics, Christianity, religion, kind of being the top. Uh, I think the truest thing I can say is I have no fucking clue what's going on. But we were saying this separation from a strong community, right? Especially, you know, obviously I'm attuned to one, that being, you know, Christian evangelicalism, but it's a painful separation. Um, Not that those relationships don't exist anymore, but one's viewpoints and ideology and worldview are held so dear and the implications are so significant in in sort of those spheres of discourse that it's hard when you go in a different direction uh, and, and it sounds like i don't know where Absolutely. you're at now but you've had some some similar experiences i identify so hard with what you're with what you're saying yeah Wheaton was a great environment for me i still owe that place a lot and my relationship with christianity is complicated i grew up pentecostal and um, hardcore Pentecostal in rural Michigan, I've experienced things that I still cannot in any way explain to myself except as an experience of God, an experience mm. of the divine, right? Like, you know, speaking in tongues, uh, being filled with the spirit, uh, the stuff, which is not going to make any sense to somebody who hasn't <laughs> gone through it, uh, is enormously powerful. Like, more powerful at an emotional and psychological level than any other experience in my life. Uh, the closest I can get to it, maybe you guys know this because I spam Twitter with it all the time, but I play the piano and the closest I can get to this kind of experience and really feeling the presence of God is like through, through playing Bach actually. And, uh, Bach's range of, I guess, intellectual and emotional connection with something that seems transcendent and beyond the ordinary realm of human experience. It's still, it still lights me up inside, like where I think, okay, I, I don't know if I can sign the dotted line on the Wheaton statement of faith, right? I don't think I can. I yeah. can't honestly affirm all of those propositions because some of them just don't seem true to me and I can't make myself think they're true. But on the other hand, I can't fully embrace the idea that the world is matter and space, that it's just a, a, me- a mechanism because of those experiences. This might sound crazy, but those experiences are so profound that even though I imagine psychologists are saying, yeah, it's just like, you know, dopamine, it, it's just, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you know what I mean? It's just your receptors. I'm like, yeah, no, I feel like I'm connecting to yeah, some order and something divine, something transcendent, something beyond. And I cannot uh, shed that belief. And probably I interpret these, these experiences through the lens of growing up Pentecostal. And, but it doesn't matter. It's like perception, right? It's like seeing something. I still feel, I still feel that, 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 connection to uh to the divine you know I, I i can't i can't shake that so i'm in a weird i'm in a weird place right of, of not being not being comfortable i can't i'm not like a, i just not down with like the dawkins 
Hitchens, yeah, like Sam Harris style evangelical atheism. I appreciate fully kind of like not just the benefits of religion that doesn't really do it justice. It's not just that it's pragmatically great to live in a community like that. It's grounding. It holds you morally accountable. It's it's purposeful. You can work together to achieve ends. You know, you went to Wheaton, right? There's like so much good that they do in the world and it's enabled by faith. I value all that, but also I think there is something to it. Like, I think there is Absolutely. something to the the religious impulse and I'm not giving up on that just because I don't have yet a scientific story to tell about. You know, I don't share the Wheaton experience with the two of you gentlemen that you guys have been talking about for 25 minutes, but what, from what I've kind of climbed onto after listening to this and heard Dan speak about it quite extensively in the past as well, is that even though this isn't, you know, a very Christian place with that orthodoxy, you're allowed to question that orthodoxy. And I think that's an incredibly important puzzle piece for this because uh, as an outsider for, I think a lot of people have the inclination that at universities, professors have like a left lean and they potentially push that view on people and haven't been in one in quite a long time. So I can't really comment on if that's true or not, but I think it's of paramount importance that professors not only give maybe their perspective, but they also give the alternative and allow that alternative to be thoughtfully spoken about in a way that allows people to make their own decisions about how things are in this world, because everyone has to make their own way. Everyone's got to make the logical decisions for themselves, whether you know they're using logic or emotion or however they want to tackle that. It has to come from within. It can't come from you know an exterior place or it's just not going to resonate in a way that's actually going to land with anybody. Yeah. Dude, can I just can I just say so I teach at Reed College right now. Reed is in Portland, Oregon. It's a about the same size as Wheaton, just a little bit smaller. It's also academically outstanding. It's excellent. And the students are highly motivated just like Wheaton students were. Work hard just like Wheaton students work hard. And they're driven by a kind of moral a moral compass moral and spiritual compass, except the religion is different. Wheaton's, um, uh, Reed's unofficial motto, which doesn't really apply anymore, but kind of did in the seventies and, and eighties, uh, is communism, atheism, and free love. So and it's often it's a lot in there. What the, oh, yeah. what the fuck does that mean? I know if we, if Wheaton had a slogan, like corresponding, so instead of communism, atheism, and free love, it would be like capitalism, Theism and chastity, right? <laughs> like yeah, mirror, yeah, for sure. The mirror opposite of places. Uh, I really want an exchange program between Wheaton and Reed uh, because Reed, Reed is often characterized as the most progressive college in America. And, right? and Wheaton, Wheaton is, is not is, labeled that way. <laughs> no, Wheaton is, is pretty right wing. Um, and so, yeah, I guess to your point, Josh, our professors left leaning. Uh, hell yes. Uh, that's backed up empirically by, you know, surveys of how people vote. And it varies a lot, uh, of course, institution to institution, but also really department to department. Like, you know, social sciences is way left of, let's say, physics. Right. Uh, or business. Business schools tend not to be left leaning, right? Or uh, the business 
and business is the number one major in America. So it's not insignificant. Uh, so it's a bit of a broad brush to say they're left, but it's, it's really on the money when it comes to both certain kinds of institutions like small or large colleges, it's certain departments. It absolutely is. And this question I have for myself all the time is how pervasive is this ideology in my institution right now, Reed College? How open is our discourse? How open is our inquiry? And how does it compare to Wheaton College? Because Wheaton has a religious identity and a statement of faith. Uh, Reed is explicitly, it's not just non-denominational. It has no stance whatsoever on religion that's built into its its uh, documents. It's, it's politically neutral and religiously neutral. Uh, political neutrality is written into its code. But I ask myself all the time, was I freer at Wheaton College mm. than I am at Reed to inquire? Wow, that's a deep. What, what's your uh, what's your spark notes on that? Yeah, well, I well, I'm still employed at Reed. I don't know how much I should. Be. <laughs> yeah, you're right. <laughs> let's just say, let's say, in some respects, I was freer at Wheaton. Uh, yeah, and I don't, I don't know that that's still true now. Uh, things Wheaton was not as right leaning when I went there. Yeah. Uh, there was a different president. There was a different philosophy. It's, it's, it's churned hard to the right since I left. It was unstable, the arrangement that was there, even when I was there. Right? It was unstable to have a really wide open and questioning uh, uh, both the classrooms that way, but also outside. Like students divided politically. You know, we, we, we had campus Republicans and campus Democrats, and they were, you know, they weren't the same size. I think they were more Republicans than Democrats, but it was uh, balanced. At, at Reed, I, I, I don't, you know, you don't see that. You don't see the concert. There aren't any conservative groups on campus that are, that are public about it, uh, at all. Right. <laughs> you don't have a discourse cross left and right that I know of. Uh, it's just, you know, how it's a, it's a discourse between like, it's a discourse between, do you abolish the police? Or do you just defund them, right? Like, <laughs> That's the re spectrum, yeah. Reform is not there. That's not really on the table. Maybe, I don't know, but it, I didn't hear anybody talk about it. But you know what I mean? Like, so, so it, the, the dialogue is pinned over into one corner of the ideological spectrum. Right. Whereas it, with Wheaton, I felt like it was actually wider open. Uh, I think some of that's just the times, right? That Probably. That was pre, I'm old, I'm Gen X. That was... That was pre-polarization of everything. Yeah. What year did you graduate, Troy? Well, I graduated early. So I graduated in 91, but I, I graduated in three years instead of four. So what okay. was class of 92? Okay. What am I saying? Class of 93. Uh, graduated in 92. Yeah. Man, that's an interesting question. And I think it it goes back to the recognition that I think most people come to when they think hard enough that they realize, we said this on a previous show, like you're captured by something. You're part of something. You're wrapped in some form of ideology, even if that ideology is I'm not part of any ideology. And I think that that for me, Troy, is why I'm kind of at a reconsideration phase of what faith and religion mean for me. Uh, I've used the analogy before, like I walked into Wheaton to study Bible theology with a, with a house full of well-ordered furniture. And over the next, you know, three to five years, the whole place got fucking obliterated and all the furniture was strewn out on the front lawn. 
And now I'm kind of at that phase in my life where I'm deciding what to bring back into the house. But to be completely untethered in life is no place to be either. It's just hard. It's For me, with these two eyes and this brain, it's hard to figure out what is grounded enough for me to tether to. And I honestly think there's some really interesting parallels between my assessment of sort of religious culture and the Bitcoin culture. There's actually a piece. I know you're going there. Uh, there's a piece that I really want to write. I wish I had more time to write, but I think the title will be something like, you know, Bitcoin Christianity and the origins of religion. And I'm going to draw a lot of parallels between what I see or saw in the Christian subculture and what I see in Bitcoin. And I think some of that is just some dramatic overconfidence about how well-defined and specific this thing is and what the future looks like. And one of the reasons I really resonated with something you said on Peter's show recently, which is just, this thing is such a powerful but basic fundamental tool. We really have no idea where it's going. And there is a tremendous amount of dogmatism and overconfidence about the trajectory of this thing. I love you. Know what I love about Bitcoin is that it keeps demolishing all of these yeah. narratives that we cook up. You know, it's like we put up a chart and the priests to flow. It's like boom, it's gone. Inflation hedge, boom, it's gone. Gone. You know, yeah. Like uh, even you know something like inscriptions. Actually, I love this because it's it's an issue that uh, you 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 know we didn't have a preset dogma that decides it precisely. It's kind of between the cracks. And you actually have to think, you have to think like, what are the threats here? What's the upside here? What's the downside? What does it mean to be a Bitcoiner? You can't just fall back on the shibboleths. And like, I love it. that Bitcoin is constantly like reality is kind of shocking the dogma constantly with new data that's forcing it to update. Right. Yes. And mm -hmm. so I, I, I agree with you completely. And, and I've, I've thought a lot about the same thing that you're, you know, the same thing that you're you're thinking about. What are the parallels and overlaps between, you know, uh, how the social dynamic of Christianity works, the dogma of Christianity, and Bitcoin? You know, so you guys probably know if you followed me. I often sit in these uncomfortable edges of Bitcoin appropriateness. Yes, right? love like, it. So, you know, the uh, yeah, when it comes to like maximalism, for instance. I don't take the label of maximalist because I actually have no idea what will happen with price. I've learned the hard way. Heretic. I've, yeah, <laughs> I have no idea. I, I'm not going to affirm the proposition that, you know, Bitcoin will ultimately become global reserve currency. It's like I have a higher confidence in that now than I did in 2011 when I bought in. But I don't have any guarantee of that, right? And And likewise... Will there be other uses for blockchain technology? Well, I'm not going to say right now that there never will be, and I know that. I'm going to say, show one to me, please, in detail. I have yet to see it, but I am not going to dogmatically say there couldn't be one. I will retain an open mind about that because who the fuck knows? I'm not in a position to rule that right. out forever and ever, right? So that's why like, yeah, maximalism seems to be in some forms to be premature in other forms where it's like fixing the money is the most important thing. It's the best use of my time and all this other bullshit is a distraction from that and could derail that mission. Yes, I agree. 
So I'm like a functional maximalist, but I cannot sign out to the dogma maximalism. And that puts me on the outs with certain people in the Bitcoin community, right? And I'm like, you know, even there, even though the roots aren't deep, even though it's not like my family and friends, it still doesn't feel good to be like, you know what I mean? What people totally. are like, yeah, you don't you want to be a black sheep or people call me a communist or whatever. Communism one is the, is the best. I've been called a communist and I, I got the person who was calling me a communist to try to define communism. And he, and then he defined communism in a way where I was like, would this make Ray, Ronald Reagan a communist? And he was like, yes, Ronald Reagan's a communist. So like, okay, <laughs> would it make Joseph McCarthy a communist? You know, the, the Senator from Minnesota. It's like, yes, Joseph McCarthy is a communist. I'm like, all right. I'm a communist, man. You know? <laughs> yeah. like, Joseph McCarthy, like Ronald Reagan, communist. Uh, you know, but, but it's like what you're talking about. Like that totally parallels a kind of purity in 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 Christianity that can be sought, like a theological purity. You you you. One of your majors is Bible theology. Like, you know, there's a certain Bible theology major who's like trying to find and burn the heretics, and uh, you know what I mean, like using history reasoning in the Bible to like narrowly define a faith, to draw a box, to exclude people. And, uh, and that has an exact parallel in Bitcoin. I, I really have no, not yeah. only no interest in that, but I have a visceral reaction. To it's that. uncanny. The resemblance. Yeah. Before, uh, before we move off any, I mean, we can continue talking about religion. This is engaging, but I want to go back and draw a little bit about what you spoke about, about having these like the tongues that you spoke about or having those kind of uh, moments in your life when you realize that like things are not completely physical, maybe some metaphysical middle ground there. I, I grew up very Christian as well as evangelical Lutheran. And as I got older, started reading and maybe my early twenties started reading Dawkins, Darwin, starting to understand the other side of this, you know? So I swung wildly to the other end and somewhere yep. in the middle is where I stand at the moment. But something I read recently, uh, a Carl Jung book, um, man and his symbols. One of the most interesting things about this is he talks a lot about dreams and interpreting dreams throughout this book and the symbology of it. It's really cool stuff. But the, the thing that struck me is that all of these dreams that people have, there's certain like, there's like five or six different archetypes through all the way to antiquity. And a lot of these archetypes parallel a lot of religious themes. So this religious theme is just something that is inherent in people like uh, primordial, primordial it's, it's nuts. And I, he talks about having dreams that almost precurse events that happen in the future. And I've had that happen to me once in my life and it's wild, but it, the longer away it gets from when this actually happened, I wonder if maybe I'm incepting the self in mm. like, did it actually happen? Or am I thinking it of happened? Course, at this point? Totally. I don't know. Yeah. Of course. It's just I one mean, of those wild with, things. Like with tons, like for instance, I found out that people in, um, Mental institutions having psychotic breaks also speak in tongues, right? And then I'm like, okay, so the <laughs> the mechanism <laughs> is is neurological. It's there. It's something like it's the most amazing thing. It's like you have to let go of conscious control of like this basic stuff like your diaphragm and your vocal cords. You're not trying to do anything. You're not like your mind is not in any way forming sounds or anything right. like that consciously you just hit a switch and like give your body over to god 
And then suddenly you feel like your own muscles, like contracting your own, your own, your own, your own vocal system, like making sounds. And it's like someone else is talking with your body, like a ventriloquist. And yeah. you're just like, blah, 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 you know, in ways that you couldn't, in ways that you couldn't make up if you wanted to, like if you sat down <laughs> yeah. to like, try to mimic it, you wouldn't make this kind of variety and weirdness of, you know what I mean? Noises I and do. phonemes that you throw together. I've seen people do it. I, I, I dated a girl in high school who brought me to her church and I think it was Pentecostal and they did the uh, speaking in tongues and I was like, yeah, it was Pentecostal. These people are insane. Sure These confirm. people are completely yeah, yeah. insane. From the outside, it seems like the most ridiculous thing ever. Uh, from the inside, I will, I just want, from the inside, it feels like infinite love, you know, in instant forgiveness. Yeah. Like a sense of calm. Like your body is out of control, but inside you feel complete peace and also you're overwhelmed by power that isn't your own right like the only thing i can compare it to is like the ocean uh like you know that that's that feeling that you're just this powerless yeah. powerless but unlike the ocean where you're scared and it's uh uh you know there's things under the water that want to kill you uh, you know, or, 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 or you need, you need oxygen. It's the opposite of that. It's like, you're perfectly safe. Mm. I, I feel like I'm describing a drug trip here and it's probably because they're <laughs> you're just probably Troy, you're describing mushrooms right now. Yep. Yeah, that's, exactly, exactly. I was on the tip of my tongue here. I, I know, I know. Right. So it's like, how can you do, how can you do psychedelics without doing psychedelics? It's like, there yeah. is a way to do it through religious Dude, the priest is just putting right? acid on all, each one of these little wafers is a little wafer of acid. Everyone's <laughs> exactly, just tripping exactly. on acid the whole time. They're like, yeah. oh my God, this religious experience. <laughs> hey, Troy, what year, what we're getting here at, man, we could go for days on this and maybe I'm we sorry, will. I, I no, this is real that. No, oh, this, this is awesome. awesome. Um, can I, can I, can I say something more about the relation between Bitcoin and Christianity that please, I will say, you know, the, 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 the group, uh, thank God for Bitcoin. And what little I've read about the actual overlap, the actual overlap where, you know, certain Bitcoiners like converting to Christianity got baptized at, at, at Bitcoin Miami 22. Uh, and, you know, there's an organization and people involved in the organization. Some of those people I, I like, good Bitcoiners. I have really mixed feelings about this. Me too. Have you, uh, you've read the, you've, I mean, you've read the book and interact. I haven't with the read crew. the book. I read like the first chapter. I, I read the book and I'll say combination of really good and massively cringeworthy for me to just interject here. So I I'm, I'm jiving with you. Go ahead. Oh, yes. Yeah, so I got to talk about this because, uh, the Christian part of me is cringing actually. Yeah. yeah. Because first of all, and I know that some of the guys organizing this are fully aware of this, but man, you know, so much of Jesus's teachings and whatever you think about the metaphysics of Christianity, Jesus' teachings, one of the most profound, you know, insights ever in the in the history of our species. And throughout the the New Testament, it's Jesus on money talking about how basically the love of money is the root of all evil. And how, you know, it's easier to it's easier for a rich man to or for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle and the rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. He tells the rich young ruler, ruler like to sell everything he has and give to the poor and then follow him. And the rich young ruler walks away sad, right? There's this, and no one can serve both God and mammon. No one can serve both God and money. 
these are profound teachings that I deeply internalized. And Bitcoin, whatever it is, whatever this cult is that we're all in now on the Bitcoin <laughs> cult, like it, it, it bears a very close resemblance to a worship of money. Like Bitcoin is the God and that Bitcoin is money. And so this is oil and water trying to try, try to mix this Christian thing and the Bitcoin thing. It's like, Oh shit. Just keep like, anyway, I have a freak out reaction. And, as and Troy, it's, it's not other. just, it's not just captivation with money, but it's fuck everyone else that doesn't, isn't yes. so captivated. It's like, yes. If if we're suggesting that Bitcoin is is as momentous as we think it is, it is a radically, I mean radically inclusive technology. And at one point you had no idea what it was. You were lost, but now you're found, right? To to, to throw some religious speak in there. And it's like, how is there not more grace for the other in this? And the I it's so crazy. I completely agree that there is a there's a juxtaposition there that's hard to rectify. Uh, with some of the tone used, I remember you know the uh, evangelical stuff when I was a kid. Like growing up, it was like if you you know these people who never heard of Jesus in Africa or somewhere, you know, they've never even been exposed to it. Are they going to hell? And the implicit answer was, well, yeah, sorry, yeah. you just never heard of it, so uh, you're fucked. <laughs> like yeah. it's just it's that, a little that bit kind of same. an answer. That's the same as have fun staying poor. Like exactly. you don't get this right now, like you're screwed. You're you you and your whole family are going to be destitute because you don't have this bitcoin thing yeah the, the the mad the mad max vision of sort of citadels while the world is in shambles and uh and you know commerce breaks down bitcoin is what kind of ties together these like you know small isolated communities which seem to be very patriarchal right it's like this throwback to abrahamic uh you know no no nomadism right we we, we build a little yeah, a citadel fortress, each of which is kind of highly structured. You're free to leave and join others. But yeah, it's a brutal zero-sum post-apocalyptic vision that does kind of maps onto, maybe you've never heard about Christ, where it maps onto like the rapture, the apocalyptic side of Christianity. Yep. It's, it's scary. And then the political overlap too. You have the right-wing side of, of evangelicalism hooking up with the right-wing side of 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 Bitcoin and that right wing the the politics that got wrapped up with evangelicalism to me, uh, just 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 wrecked it for me. It's I I, I mean I I I don't think I think the marriage of you know Donald Trump and Christianity was a, just a disaster uh, on all, all sorts of levels. Like that 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 guy that particular that particular guy uh, hooking up his identity and his his cult with 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 this what I think of as you know, one of the greatest forms of social organization ever, which is Christianity, the greatest expression of that universal Jungian uh, religious impulse, one of the greatest manifestations of it in human history is the religion of Christianity. To have that, like, you know, wrapped up with, like, local historical political contingencies and a particular agenda, which wasn't particularly Christian, was in many ways opposite Christ the Christian vision utterly lacking in, in grace yeah. that that was a tragedy right and then to see bitcoin kind of like i see bitcoin as this neutral like escape from that bullshit to see it get pulled in to the bullshit yeah like, no no please no bitcoin is so much more than that you know it's it's this physical thermodynamically based algorithmically based perfectly neutral tool for human for humans 
please don't pull it into the muck of our petty political disagreements. It, it is just a reflection of the tribalism of Homo sapien. Like we can't help ourselves. And yep. and to do some credit to Christianity, um, to to not just bash it. Like there, as you alluded to earlier, there are many beautiful themes, ideas, metaphors, whether they're reality or not, is up for debate. But in my head, but about this person or character that we know as Jesus of Nazareth. And so this is where like the Christian that's really committed to what Jesus represented in his time and then what that means for us today, they're sickened by evangelicalism's association with Donald Trump. Like my brother, David is absolutely sickened by that. He, in a lot of senses, right. And he's a very responsible, intellectually responsible, hyper intelligent, vigilant, curious Christian, just the same as Bitcoin getting captured by all sorts, a litany of, of crazy dogmatic insanity is sickening. And what's really compelling is going back to this, this basic decentralized, radically inclusive protocol. What does this mean? And removing all of these attachments, because man, are there a lot of attachments that have come alongside Bitcoin culturally? And I'm sure it's not going to stop anytime soon. And, and if I could say one more thing about sort of how I see broadly the relation between how I see the relation between Bitcoin and Christianity, the big point of disanalogy, Bitcoin itself, you know, it, it is math. It is physics. It is brutal. There is no such thing as forgiveness in Bitcoin. Mm, yeah. Forgiveness would be like rolling back the chain. Yep. We don't do that. We leave that up to the Ethereum people, right? They forgive. <laughs> we just enforce, Ethereum, we just enforce the rules, right? And think about this terror of kind of like the first time you make a large transaction on chain, mm -hmm. you are responsible for your keys, right? That is at the same time, both incredibly empowering and scary uh, as hell and scary as hell. Right. And I think it's kind of like old Testament God, like the, the, the way the protocol works and we as a Bitcoin community, separate from the protocol actually act like the church in the sense that we help individuals like new newbies to to navigate the terrors of 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 this ruthless protocol where you lose <laughs> your net worth like like you know what i mean like, i know exactly what you mean scammed or whatever so we see a lot of humanity and, and a tremendous generosity from the bitcoin community and i was on the receiving of this in 2011 when someone helped me set up a node right At, or not the node that was easy but someone helped me, helped me set up my miners on on graphics cards right and I, I just like tipped him like five Bitcoin, like at the time, right? you know, <laughs> didn't Small realize tip. what that would mean, but <laughs> like, it's always been, it's always been this way from the start. Plebs and the Bitcoin community has incredible generosity, like the church, like the Christian community. Right. And then, but then it's got this backdrop of just merciless, yeah, uh, unfeeling. And this goes back to the ocean, uh, I did have this experience. I was in South Africa off the coast of, uh, it was by Durban in the Indian ocean. And I was surfing out there during the, the, the sardine, uh, migration, which is an annual event. One of the biggest in nature where the sardines come up from Antarctica, go through between Madagascar and, and Africa North and the whole of nature, like feeds on this migration. Sharks and dolphins like work together to herd the, 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 uh, the fish. I'm out there on my surfboard and past the break. And it was really hard to get out. I'm exhausted. 
and birds start dropping out of the sky by like the hundreds all around me to eat these fish. And I know what it means and that there are like sharks underneath me. And I just felt this like terror of, uh, the current's strong. I'm exhausted. There are sharks underneath me. Nature is here. It doesn't care about me. It doesn't care. It's the opposite of that Christian. Like I talked about that speaking in tongues, that feeling of yeah. total mm. safety. The opposite is just like indifference. It's not that nature's cruel. It's like, I'm just protein out here. <laughs> yeah. I'm floating. I'm floating. Right. That's Bitcoin. That is Bitcoin, right? You're, 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 you're in it. You're not in a community. It's not personal. It's impersonal. It's physical. It's rule bound. You're, you're me, but you could also be, you know, it could also work to your advantage. It's a radical agency. It's radical navigation of, of, of reality without, without a net. And then human beings in a separate capacity, helping each other navigate. And that is, I mean, it's like blunting the edge of just care, like nature, like what what you're describing is almost like this this the church is blunting the edge of nature for people that have to face yeah. down the idea that they're going to die. Totally. And the implications of that are completely mysterious to us. Just as it, I mean, just as you know, you you might have misplaced a hardware wallet at some point and had a mini panic attack and found your keys and thanked God and <laughs> thank God of course and uh, yes, you figured it out. But I I can I'm it. completely in line with what you're saying here. It makes total sense. How and to face it, death. And it's how to face an angry God, sinners in the hands of an angry God. Right? Yeah, yeah. The church is what you know mediates this this harshness of of hell and death and sickness and loss and everything. And there, so I see the total parallel here in the Bitcoin community and how we help each other almost spontaneously, and it's beautiful, right? Let's. Uh, I want to just go real deep on this one. Let's talk about death for a second. How do you? <laughs> I love it. The way that I kind of frame this in my own mind, uh, whether just to, let's just assume we're not Christians here for a second, right? This yep. world has been around for 14 or this universe, 14 something billion years. You didn't exist for the vast, vast majority of that. And you had no problem with that. You didn't understand that. You didn't know that because you weren't here to know that you weren't here. And so post yourself, you're simply back in the same place. Like it's in the worst case scenario. In my point, and is my point here is, you're simply going to transfer back into the same existence you had prior to your 50 years you've been here, whatever it is. What is your take on that? I mean, it's a classic uh, argument. Uh, you know, it appears in uh, Lucretius, ancient uh, Roman philosopher. Yeah, Lucretius says it's irrational to fear death because. There's nothing it's like to be dead. There is no experience of being dead. And you you don't feel badly about uh, not having existed before you were born. So there is nothing to fear. There is no like object that is fear worthy, right? That has never really provided me any comfort, if I'm being <laughs> honest. It, it, it's, uh, I think it shows us something which is that we, we fear not only that, that the proper objects of fear includes more than just your own mental states. You know, you don't just fear the feeling, but you fear, say, like I think about entirely now in terms of my kids, I've got, um, I got a six-year-old daughter and a nine-year-old son. So if I think about death, I think about 
them not having me as a father mm. uh, as they grow up, right? Uh, and also me not having the experience of watching them grow up and sharing that with them. So, like, if I if if uh, Lucretius comes to me and says, "Oh, but you're being irrational," I'm just like, "Fuck you, man! I yeah. want to be there for my kids." Yeah, you know, what? I want to be there for my kids. I do think that, uh, you know, philosophy is all about dealing with death, and the main insight I've gotten from Plato through Heidegger is, don't deny it. Don't live as if you aren't going to die. Live in the knowledge of your death and the acceptance of your death. We, you know, and it, it's hard to do that. We we tell ourselves a little lie every day that this is just one more, and we've got a we, we've got an infinite supply. And 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 rationally, we can't do that. We have to live as if life is short, because it fucking is. Yeah. It is short. And That's Troy, the here's the situation. For us, what we do vocationally, we're you know as firefighter paramedics. That lie is harder to tell yourself when you do what we do for a living. We see more dead bodies in five months than most people will see in their entire, in multiple lifetimes, right? We're, we're there for the fucked up shit. And unless you have a DNR or a pulsed form in this state and you die, we're showing up, right, to help pronounce death. So it is something that for the likes of Josh and I, it's just harder to escape from, you know, pain, suffering, aging, death. You have to stare them in the eye when you work in healthcare, kind of the way we do. Um, to go back, that's a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a really hard thing for you guys. I'm sure that's really, really hard. My wife is a hospital infectious disease pharmacist, and uh, so I hear it all secondhand. You know, it's yeah. hard. It's uh, it's also rewarding. It's it's rewarding though too, and I think it. Yeah. I think it informs a perspective that I really appreciate in life. Actually, I think. I'm able to recognize how fleeting life is, enjoy time, yeah. prioritize things in my life that I really care about because it's so much on the forefront. It's hitting me at, at 30 instead of 60 when it hits a lot of people, when their, their peers start dying. Um, yeah, the, exactly. The, yeah. The other I, think, I, I think Bitcoin's related to this too, right? Because it's, uh, I, I, I feel like, well, some of it's the treadmill that people are on financially and the the potential and the promise mm. to, you know, uh, actually use money to do what you want to do and what's truly valuable rather than chasing, which is how a lot of people live. Or hoarding it, hoarding. never spending it and never exactly. enjoying it. Yeah. Hoarding it, chasing it. Like, so actually, yeah, money is related to how we think about death because I feel like for a lot of people, money is one of the ways in which they live in denial about death. Right. Mm. You, you know, that they, they, you know, you, you, you punch in, you punch out, you're, you're, you're living in a way that you, if you really thought about your debt, you might not choose to live that way, but you're accumulating money and you need to, and you're caught in a debt cycle. And then just to distract yourself, uh, just to just, just, just distract yourself from the, the, the pains of life and the pains that are caused by working at bullshit job that you do not enjoy you know you you use money to to escape from that in the form of of entertainment leisure uh etc et right like actually Aristotle distinguishes between entertainment and leisure entertainment is what you do to distract yourself from work uh to give yourself a break from work and it's fine 
leisure is what you work in order to be able to do, right? That's, that's the, the focus of the end of work, right? Like philosophy is leisure for him. Music is leisure. Right? These aren't just, anyway, look, I think the goal of a, a kind of a Bitcoin or stacking is to reduce the amount of work they have to do and increase the amount of leisure they have and leisure that looks like work very often from the outside because it's productive, it's adding value, but it's not just trying to kind of drown or bury the the miseries that you're enduring as a worker. Yeah. I was going to say too, to, to draw another religion, Christianity parallel, like be wary of the emotional promises of something. So for me, we, we, we threw some stones at the likes of Dawkins, but one area that I think he really got, got things churning for me was, was his meme, you know, talking about meme theory and what works and what proliferates and, um, binary, binary thinking, dramatic thinking, black and white thinking types of thinking that breed fear and rapturous emotion and excitement like those are intoxicating those are the types of things that that build disciples if you will and just as i think that that there it, there could be and likely is something very hollow to the adopt this specific viewpoint invite jesus in your heart in this certain way and everything's set forever you could draw the parallel to just stack a little bit yeah. of bitcoin day over day and Everything's set in the future. And and it and, and that's where I encourage people to move to try to attempt. You're not going to succeed, but to move past the emotion, to move past the indoctrination, to move past the regurgitation of the guy that you heard last week, and really stop and think for yourself, why are you here? Because if if the only reason that you're here in Bitcoin is so that you can get rich quick and do some cool shit in the future. I mean, maybe that floats your boat. For me, that's not enough, and that's not a good reason, and that's not a wholesome reason to be engaged in this community. And the implications of Bitcoin are, are potentially so much more dramatic than that that you got to dig deeper. Um, but you, but you got to get past the surface there, and that, that's hard for a lot of folks. Well, I I, I like uh, I think about the way this works and the meme construction. I mean, I'm with you on on, on Dawkins. One of my colleagues at Reed actually works on cultural evolution and has, you know, developed mean theory and applied it to very disparate areas like patent law. But I can't help but admire the construction of memes and the way that it has fueled the adoption of Bitcoin, right? They work. So you're, you're at like, you're at like stage two, like, first of all, the memes work, uh, and they, they, they draw people in because people do want money. They want financial freedom. They're desperate. The memes draw them in. The deeper you dig into Bitcoin, it's like, yeah, actually Bitcoin isn't about just rescuing you from your financial straits. It's about rescuing everyone from the conditions that led to this kind of mass enslavement, despite the fact that productivity is at the moon. You know, like how did productivity and wages come apart so much that you desperately need something like Bitcoin to save you from being crushed. That's what it's about. But it's like that, that isn't the initial sell. The initial sell is like, how do I get my ass out of this problem it's in? Right. So, so it's like, yeah, this is the wonderful thing about Bitcoin and the wonderful thing about Bitcoin's rabbit hole. You know, it's, it starts with 
Andrew, actually, Andrew Bailey gave a really nice talk on, on this. The, the cypherpunks had a problem. How do we get freedom technology to be adopted? We do not have the teams at Google, at Facebook, at Amazon, at Microsoft. We don't have, you know, millions of dollars of VC money to make our interface slick and to focus on like the colors and fonts and make everything perfect. Satoshi's like, I got you. I got you. We got a financial incentive that will, that will, you know, lead people to adopt a freedom go up technology, a freedom technology. That is the very core of it. So I got these like mixed feelings, Dan. It's like, I, I agree with everything <laughs> you're saying, but it's yeah. like that those simplistic memes, the black and white nature of it, the creed, like it's also the core of why this fucking works. Yeah, you got to bootstrap it somehow. Like to get parishioners in the pews, you may need to tell them they're going to hell. And to get Bitcoin into mass adoption, you may need to tell them they're going to get rich. Nailed it. What we're really essentially seeing here, though, at least from my perspective, is that that discord started in the early 70s when we kind of separated from the gold standard where this um, productivity has gone up massively. I think it's like 250% or so, while wages have gone up like 100% since then. So there's this huge 150% disparity there. And effectively, this is separating money from human nature, like allowing yeah. somebody, any institution, any group of people of, you know, sinful creatures to allow, allowing them and their cohorts to control and manipulate interest rates, the price of money in, I mean, it's predictably going to turn into a situation like we're seeing right now, which in the scheme of history is actually pretty tame. Like we, it's actually pretty amazing how well-disciplined the people at the helm have been over the last 50 years or so that they haven't blown it up. Um, but they're seemingly getting closer and closer. And what this Bitcoin is, is it's just nature. It's taking, it's taking the power out of the hands of humanity and the ocean does what it does. We have absolutely no control over that and it's going to do what it does. And we have to compensate for ourselves. We can't make it compensate for us. Yeah. Um, so this, it's basically human nature that is the the problem that we're seeing. Josh, Always. one one follow up there. I do see a lot of dysfunction in the world today. However, I think maybe I could say particularly in the Bitcoin community because I'm attuned to it. There is just a lot of really pessimistic, fatalistic perspective on the current state of our species and. Like when you think about human cooperation, but if we were if we were to put nuclear weapons back in the ancient Near East to talk about you know the, tie this back <laughs> to the Bible, like can you imagine what would have happened to the planet? Yeah, what do you think in, in Genghis Khan would have done of, with of tribalism? Weapons. Like, so uh, there's a lot of dysfunction, there's a lot of fraying in society, but we've also come a long freaking way. And my my hope and intention and desire is to keep the glass half full and look at a lot of things, Bitcoin in included, and say. How can we continue to, to evolve in cooperation and inclusion and love as a species moving into the 21st century instead of just saying, I'm going to get my fucking sats, get off the grid, fuck the rest of the world, you're all going to stay poor. Like, I, I do challenge a lot of pessimistic thinkers that just think this is completely different. Put yourself back in the 19, late 1930s, like compare even the Cold War to where we are today. I mean, every single generation thinks the world's going to hell in a handbasket. And let's not create that. Let's not bring that to fruition through just throwing in the towel. Yeah. Can I say something here about other academics and part of why Bitcoin is 
how Bitcoin is being perceived within the academy uh, by people who work on on money. Uh, I think what you're picking up on, Dan, is the takeaway lesson for them about like what Bitcoin means. They think of Bitcoin as anti-institutional, anti-institutional, uh, and and therefore, they, so they they sort of see, I think. The forces of capitalism, and I say they, of course, this is a broad brush. I'm talking about a few specific people. I don't want to name names. They see capitalism as the problem. They see capitalism as like, uh, like why are people suffering? Why do we have wealth inequality? They, they see capitalism as the problem. A lot of Bitcoiners are like, yeah, actually it's not capitalism. It's the mon- it's the monetary system. Capitalism would be fine with the right monetary system. Their perspective is like, no, it's just, that's neoliberalism and capitalism. How do we fix it? We have to, uh, like, strengthen institutions that protect people against the vicissitudes of capital. So protect people from getting wiped out, protect against, just like governments protect against market failure with monopolies, or they, you know, protect against uh, externalities that are not internalized. You strengthen institutions to keep basically human flourishing in mind along with just, you know, the maximization of profit. And they see Bitcoin as the antithesis of that, as the perfect enabler of capitalism and the perfect enemy of any mm. institutional check on free-ranging capital. That's how they've set up the battleground. And I like, and a lot of Bitcoiners are like, yes. <laughs> you know what I mean? Some Bitcoiners are just like, Yes, it is absolutely anti-institutional. It's anti-groups of humans getting together to protect each other against the vicissitudes of market forces with regulation. And I think the truth is far more nuanced that, you know, groups of people can still work together. Bitcoin doesn't stop that from happening. And they can still actually use Bitcoin if they so choose to achieve their ends. Like, it's just a tool. It doesn't just have to be used by, you know, patriarchs and citadels or, or, or individuals in Mad Max post-apocalyptic, right. you know, scenarios. It can, it, it can be used by municipals, used by groups of mutual aid. It, 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 it doesn't, Bitcoin doesn't have any stance on how people should align themselves or not socially. It, it just works. Like you said, Josh, it, it's, it's a check on certain overreaches and in this sense it is anti-institutional right it's anti-institutional if your institution is make money out of nowhere and give it to right. a select group of already hyper rich people yes it's anti that but it, that doesn't it doesn't mean it's broad brush anti-institutional right so someone who's presenting that argument one of my first thoughts is has nothing to do with bitcoin at all like if you're going to compare these different ideologies like capitalism, uh, socialism, communism. What I don't understand about people who hold the, let's say somewhere in the middle, the more socialist lean is how do you think you're going to encourage people to want to be productive? Like that's the fundamental problem I see with the socialism on paper is a great idea, except that people aren't going to be persuaded to want to do anything productive if they don't need to, or there's no carrot. You know what I'm saying? The game theory just doesn't work, especially with communism, but uh, socialism, I think, would be somewhere in the middle, but I just don't understand how they think the society can proliferate with those with with that incentive structure. 
You know what I mean? Like how do they, how do they kind of work their way through that? Yeah. I mean, it's a classic, it's a classic and deep philosophical and psychological divide, uh, where, you know, I'm thinking of, I'm thinking of in particular, somebody I heard address this question is Peter Singer, philosopher, Peter Singer, and uh, who, who was like, why would you think that humans wouldn't be productive if they, you know, didn't live in fear of whether they could pay their hospital bill or, or, or where they didn't know where their next meal was coming. Like only hunger, only hunger and fear can motivate, you know, human productive activity or take Andrew Yang on the last election cycle who's uh, advocating for a universal basic income. Uh, Yang sort of tried to make the point that, uh, a universal basic income would make people more productive because, uh, you're more productive in a an abundance mindset than a scarcity mindset. Uh, it uses this kind of psychological literature that basically entrepreneurs, uh, for instance, don't start businesses when they're in a pinch. They start it when they have a little bit of breathing space financially to, to launch a mm -hmm. venture. And so you have that perspective on the one hand and you have the other perspective on the other hand that like, no, with a free lunch, you're going to sit on your ass and watch Netflix. And, um, uh, that's a, that's an empirical question about, you know, yeah. what, what humans would do. And I don't know, I've worked with people in Portland actually, who, uh, have different views on this from working. We've got a huge homeless problem sure. here. And, and some people are like, look, if you just give a universal basic income to the homeless, we could solve this problem. And other people are like, are you kidding? It would just go to drugs and be gone instantly. Right. And it wouldn't, it, 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 it wouldn't solve anything. Right. Uh, and, and, and so, yeah, I, I don't, uh, I don't pretend to know the answer to that, to that question. And it's also, you know, a spectrum and like, how right. much do you deserve just for being alive from the rest of society? One answer is like zero. And then another answer is, you know, Hayek's answer is a, some basic non dying, state right enough food to live roof over your head that's yeah one one famous I, austrian economist answer to that question right i was i certainly wouldn't profess to know the answer either and i think the nuanced answer would be we decide that kind of by having a left and right in this political battle that goes back and forth and we find a middle ground that usually yep. works out in the end um but it's hard for me to theorize how anyone's going to take a real chance like take a real risk if there's not really if on the other end of that bell curve, there isn't some massive reward for them. Like, uh, you know, right. Jeff Bezos, you take a huge risk, you, it pays off for you, but maybe there's 10,000 other people who tried the same thing and failed completely. But many of those people wouldn't take that risk if they didn't have that upside potentially there for them. Right. Now we're talking about upside and I agree. Upside has to be there. Now the question is how much upside has to be there. And so yeah. you look at sort of the U S in the fifties, where the tax code was very different than it is now. And there was far less upside to be had. And now it's just another empirical question, uh, with, with a hyper graduated income tax. Uh, I mean, taxes are all distorting, right? We know this every single tax distorts. The question is which distortions, uh, are, are the worst for the economy, which forms of distortion are the worst. And then what amount of distortion? actually hampers creating real goods. And yeah, if there's no upside, then no one's going to take a risk. Um, if the, 
the question is, uh, do you need to have an upside of the sort that, you know, that we have right now that allows you to absorb all of the growth in the entire economy from COVID? You know what I mean? Like, do we need yeah. that much upside right. in order to encourage entrepreneurial activity? I doubt it. So I don't know. I also, I guess I'm kind of of the mind that it's, it's kind of, um, hubristic to think that you can determine, you know, sitting on the sidelines, what the upshot should be for anyone or what the downside, like, I guess I'm just much more of a free market, uh, minded person, but I, I think that the market does, does take care of itself. And I think if tax structures were maybe different people, there would be a lot of charitable people. There are a lot of charitable people, but those types of things like the church tradition, traditionally throughout the last thousand years took care of a lot of poor. There's just a, there's a lot of mechanisms behind besides, uh, forcing people, forcing functions on people to get them to do something that's, um, right. I think it, people it, generally are good. It would be interesting. No clue what the numbers would bear, but to find out how generous libertarians are. My hunch is that, uh, the numbers may not be as in their favor as they think. Um, I think that's just a total conjecture for me. Like I, I, and Troy, you and I come from like a, what I would call a extremely generous community. Like the yeah. Christian community is insanely generous. Like it, it puts secular culture to absolute shame, blows it into smithereens. Like most serious Christians are giving 10% or more of their income. And some of them are giving huge percentages of their income. I mean, I, I know people I'm not going to name us here, but I am friends with people that literally give away 50% of their income. Like that's how generous they are. So like I do, this is a really high level question and maybe the free market can completely organize this. But I think one question that comes to mind is I sort of go over like further to the left or the socialist side in my, in, not that I feel this way, but as I'm sort of steel manning is we've talked about this massive progression of productivity and, and technological advancement of our species. So where should the safety net be in the 21st century, in the 22nd century? Like, as we move on and we have all these tools, AI, productivity, exponentially growing technology, should old ladies who don't have money die on their living room floor in Taiwan? I don't know. Pick an area. But like, where does this, where does the safety net lie? How do we implement that? That's a really profound question. Right now, that answer, at least, is primarily coming from the state. Maybe that morphs. Maybe the network state in the future can can kind of implement those strategies. But once again, just to have this isolationist view of like, I'm going to get mine. I'm going to take me and my family to the Citadel and everybody can figure their own thing out. There's an understandable push against that from other people that are just innately compassionate and say, hey, there should be a basic level of human thriving in an age when we can afford it. But the answers to that are complex as hell. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And that's really well said. And I won't add anything to it. Josh, uh, you know, what's interesting is, uh, you know, I share your love of markets. I think markets are wonderful for solving collective action problems. And I think we should interfere with them minimally, just basically to keep them functioning. We know they can fail in certain cases, right. like with externalities or monopolies. Uh, when it comes to the last claim you made, it's interesting. You're like, people are good. And what's interesting is the flip side of the earlier question you asked, which was, what's going to motivate people to keep working if they have like their basic needs met? The answer from somebody like, you know, you were asking me to channel the socialist 
take is like, well, sure. people are good. <laughs> so you know, you, you you believe that people are people are good will will lead you to two beliefs. One is that people won't just freeload on the system, but will try to make a contribution for for their own dignity, self worth, social plaudits. Like if you invent something and provide a service, uh, you gain. Well, we're we're back to uh, social capital, right? You gain social capital, and people work for that as well as as for money. Uh, and, and then on the flip side, uh, the, you know, the free market take is like, people are good. So they're not going to let their neighbors, you know, die in the apartment building floor. We're going to form mutual yeah. aid societies or, or whatever. And there's a weird connection here between the far left and the far right, because yeah. like anarchists don't trust governments to do that either. And they think we need mutual aid societies. Are those voluntary? Like, yeah. So, um, you know, people will form into groups to help each other out in the absence of some structure, which likely will be, I mean, dehumanizing, impersonal, and ineffective. Right? Like the, these, the 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 idea that you you just helicopter in some money to solve the, the situation mm-hmm. of a person in need. Dan, you'll know what I'm talking about. Like the church does not address a human being in need simply by writing them a check. You know, it starts with a conversation. What's your problem? How did you get here? Where's your family? Like, how do we help you out? Like, what do you need now? How do, how do we get you out of this situation, right? It, it's not it's not a matter of, and that requires relationship. That requires getting into the nitty gritty of a person's life. And um, and and we, we have social structures that do that. They're like family, community. All of those things have been kind of hollowed out. You know, the Lions mm. Club, the veterans associate yep. like all of these kind of groups of association have been hollowed in our world as we kind of isolate both electronically uh, you know disappear into the internet but also as we have structures that are impersonal and that trade sort of human capital human forms of debt and obligation like i owe you one you help me out i'll help you out for simply cutting a check and uh at a, at a deeper level what we'll, we'll, whatever form of social organization we use to help people who are actually in need and what our safety net actually looks like, you know, it has to be human if it's really going to work. Yeah. The, I was, I was going to say too, um, I think as we think through big topics like this about the size of the state and free markets and, and all this stuff, it's sort of like baby steps in my head. The, the future I envision on a more Bitcoinized world is one where a harder digital money that's workable in the 21st century provides more accountability against overspending. And so now people in the jurisdiction paying taxes are actually making real decisions on what they want to pay for. Hey, we don't want this crazy infrastructure bill where 80% of it's going into complete vapid nothing, but we do want to fund a robust EMS system where when someone calls 911, people show up that are highly trained, but people can start picking and choosing what actually matters. And the glass half full of me agrees with you, Josh, that, that humanity will pick solidarity with one another and support from one another. It's just right now we, we don't have a clear picture of what we're, what we're paying for. Cause there's just so much gross overspending because of the, the unlimited opportunity for debasement. Yeah, overspending, overinvestment, 
as well. Uh, you know, this giant pool of money means we have tons of malinvestment. Uh, we have a lot of bullshit throughout the world of business and the world of government that would go away on a Bitcoin standard. I mean, ultimately, Bitcoin is an accounting mechanism that's true. This is that back to uh, back to the overlap with uh, with religion. Uh, it's that it's it's a uh, it's a weight and measure that's true, and that that would bring discipline. You know, Alex Gladstein's written this wonderful piece on funding war, uh, how we fund war. We don't have war bonds anymore, even. We print money for war. Right? If we had to actually pay for war, we would probably fight a lot less. Hmm. And, yep. you know, kind, kind of like people actually serving in the military rather, you know, with a draft rather than, you know, rather than being able to escape, that's also going to decrease the amount of actual war that we engage in. How many sure. social behaviors like that would change? And just think about the then a radical abundance that would come with deflation. This is the Jeff Booth vision, right? If we had a money that's true, we would allow technology to reduce prices. And I think a lot of our bickering and Josh, like, you know, where do we draw the line on the social safety net, how much the government do? A lot of that just goes away hmm. when you don't have the ability to spend yes. money you don't have. And when everything is getting miraculously cheaper, like right. suddenly it's just a lot easier to live. Housing is now affordable. But you think, think about the housing crisis, right? We're like, basically, should the government cut people a check to provide for housing? Okay, good question. Let's step back. Why does it cost a million dollars to buy a house? <laughs> you know what I mean? Relative yeah, totally. salary, what the fuck? So yeah. maybe if houses didn't cost a million dollars, we wouldn't have thousands of people roaming the streets in the first well, place. If we uh, just give everyone a million dollars, it solves the problem. I don't, yeah, I don't exactly, see the problem. Exactly. <laughs> so my hope is, and this, like, Dan, I agree with you, like, we don't know, but my hope is that sound money and technological deflation and productivity, some of this, you know, our decision space is going to be very different. We're like fighting over these hard decisions. I think we might have a lot easier decisions, you know, on a Bitcoin standard. I, I saw this chart. I, I don't remember where it was now at the top of my head, but over the last hundred years or so, even with this backdrop of debasement and all the crazy stuff that went on in the 20th century, we have fewer absolutely poor people now than in history. You know, mm -hmm. on Amazing. the on the long arc of history, we are massively better off. And as the world continues to technologically advance. We continue to lift people out of poverty. You know, it's my hope. And I, I think that's probably the way things are going to go. And I think Bitcoin on top of that is even even more so going to engage people to be more generous and the world to just be more prosperous and and get everybody hopefully out of poverty. I, I think I've just read this. I've just read this uh, book by David Graeber, Debt, the First 5,000 Years, right? And when you when you see how money causes suffering, it's through the mechanism of debt, right? Historically and across all societies, debt uh, leads to the disruption of human relationships and subjugation, servitude, and the dehumanization uh, of our fellow, fellow man. And I feel like Bitcoin puts a check on debt. Like it doesn't eliminate debt. You can still 
borrow in a Bitcoin standard. And I think there'll be banking. I'm not one of these people who thinks it puts an end to debt, but it's going to radically reduce the amount of debt in society, right? And so you go about these spirals of debt that people go into, uh, we can check that. And, and rather than the bottom of the barrel being, you know, complete des- destitu- destitution and servitude for life, you know, it, it, you, you always have, you have a floor on how low you can go and you can always start stacking again and building and building capital. Right. So I, I, I think there's a big, big picture, not only Josh, are you right? Like, like life is getting better because of human progress and technology, but a lot of the misery we see is due to these financial devices that just wouldn't survive in the wild on a Bitcoin standard, because you can get a risk-free rate of return on Bitcoin. That's along the lines of the average growth of the economy itself. Yeah, man. Amen. I mean, I I cannot resonate more with, with what you just laid out there. I agree completely with the trajectory of debt on a harder workable money standard that I think Bitcoin could impart. Crippling debt is the antithesis of abundance and freedom. And that is part of the reason I got captivated with economics and finance. So that's part of my story too, Troy, is just kind of post-Wheaton, wanting to flex the brain somewhere else, got super interested in econ and finance. That's how Josh and I first jived and how this whole friendship and journey started. The world is just absolutely saturated with crippling debt. Obviously, there's good forms and bad forms of debt, but you look at the average consumer, the average middle-class person, I hate to say it, the average fireman, people are just in absolute bondage to their consumerism. They feel entitled to this higher lifestyle, and and that's been enabled by just insanely cheap money, right? And I'm reading this book right now called The Price of Time. We've basically just discounted the price of time artificially because our money system is broken. And so my hope, once again, to predict this as though it's inevitable is adorable. Back to a lot of this conversation. Like you've got people just saying, this is going to happen. This is inevitable. It's not. But my hope and presumption is that a a bit rewriting one of the base layer languages of, of humanity, that being the language of value is hopefully going to lead to more abundance, better cooperation. And my, my hope and prayer, I could say, is that out of that abundance, it bears the fruit of generosity. And that may be kind of the wellspring of how that safety net is easier in play. If people aren't in crippling debt, if they're experiencing more abundance, it's going to be a lot easier to solve these problems like tons of homeless people on the street of San Francisco. Or at least that's my my hope. Yeah, I, I'm right there. I don't think we, it's really hard to picture it, right? always trying to look through this aperture of hyper-Bitcoinization. What does the world look like on the other side of that? And we can't really see, we see through a glass darkly, right. <laughs> through the aperture of, of hyper-Bitcoinization darkly. And and there's another aperture, which is AI. And, you know, where, How does that progress? And what does life look on the other side of that one? And I'm always trying to kind of look through both of these things, and I'm never sure... Whether it's yeah, I don't my, know, man. You know my own hopes and dreams. Like what you spell as beautiful, Dan. Like that this abundance, it takes our, us as a species out of the scarcity mindset, mm. as a species, and we're able. You know, we, we just we're just more chill. You know, we're just less stressed out. That some of the stress that we feel economically, uh, we talked about Trump earlier. Trump 
channeled and understood the stress that middle America is feeling and economically that that is the secret to his success politically right that stress is real and it's the source of political polarization the hatred the you know what I mean it that 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 underlying stress is why everyone's freaked out could we relieve that can I see through the aperture and see in the era where people can just breathe for a minute you know just take a breath it's going to be okay like the world isn't coming to an end your family's future can be you can see it. You have hope to live a decent life. And then you can start thinking about more than survival and more mm. than just consuming to bury your own misery, more, more than just like, you know, retail therapy. You don't need right. retail therapy because you, because that's a response to a, a stressful situation. Maybe just, maybe just think about where the stress is coming from and maybe we can relieve that. that that's a, you know, that's a vision that would be, I don't know. Looking at history, yeah, it's a pipe dream, but it's, it's something to strive for. Yeah, that's a uh, the AI thing is something I think is coming to the forefront in my mind, and anyone paying attention to this is really going to change things in a massive way, very, very much sooner than we all anticipated. I was reading last night that they're talking about having a uh, using Chat GPT to diagnose people and issue them drugs. Yeah, like, this yep. is. I mean, this is white collar stuff like upper echelon white collar work is just going to get disintermediated and potentially, you know, but I mean, at the same time, you look at the other end of it and like some of the poorest people in the world can now afford to be checked out by a pseudo doctor, maybe given prescription drugs that they need that they couldn't have gotten exactly. before, could have never been able to do that. But at the same time, we're going to put people out of work who have been, you know, spent 15 years of their life uh, being trying to become a doctor and now suddenly realizing, holy shit, this AI just completely upended it um, yeah, and, and that's coming, just one small aspect of this thing yeah it's, it's coming after a lot of jobs and uh i think i'm a teacher you know uh the, the these essays that it writes a lot of teachers are like this is a crap essay like it, you know it can't write it can't write better than a d or a c essay i'm like actually look through your latest batch of essays it's it's doing better than a lot of them, <laughs> you know, yeah. it's got the basic form of organization and the sentences are well constructed. And it, for me, it just obliterates a certain model of education because you can just chat GPT your essays, right? Can you, is there any good way to like discern if this was chat GPT or is that all I've heard? There are people that say that they can determine that. Are there programs for that? Or is that all just yeah. fear mongering? Yeah, no, there are, but it's statistical, right? So you get like a, Look, it's ninety nine percent likely this thing came from Chat GPT, but you can't nail yeah. it down a hundred percent. So it's not good enough to like prosecute like a cheating case. Gotcha. As a prof, I'm just like, yay, bring it on, because <laughs> writing this fair five paragraph essays was always bullshit anyway. And what is education really about? What is it really about? What is its real value? Why do we do it in the first place? Chat GPT and AI is forcing us to answer this question in mm. a real way. We can't any longer say, well, we got to teach you to write. You have to write in every domain of life. Well, not really. You can just kind of give Chat GPT a prompt and you'll get a nice little memo. So that's out the window. So what are yeah. we fucking doing? Well, you guys maybe, just play this circular game where you have Chat BT, GPT, yeah. you know, grade the work that Chat B GPT made and then <laughs> yeah, like totally. everyone wins. They get a PhD. We're all good. This is. This is to me wonderful. I at Wheaton, I was a 
not a great student. Uh, I wasn't a good student in high school. I didn't really become good until like the last part of my Wheaton journey and then on into graduate school when I started working, working really hard. I just never understood the point of getting like a lecture and then I take notes and then I regurgitate those notes in the form of like an essay answer and an exam or something. Like what, what just happened and why does that matter? Right? Like I hate this. This is just inefficient. Why don't you just turn in your own notes for me? Yeah. We can skip this step of stenography or whatever. Right. Like, and when I came into my own as a teacher, it's like, of course, everybody just like as a parent, you, you're a bad parent, but not in the ways that your parents were bad. But like as a teacher, like I'm never giving my students bullshit work. I am never making it a bullshitty experience. I'm, I'm going to force them to think and assignments are going to be exercises in what we really want to do here, which is, you know, uh, drive them deep into a, a question and force them to try to understand it from the inside out for themselves. Like, I don't remember it was you, Josh, or you, Dan, that said earlier, people have to come to ideas themselves. You know, it can't just be pushed onto them. So what kind of exercises, like, force people to figure things out for themselves? Those are the only ones that are worthwhile. My exams are oral exams. Every student comes into my office. We have a conversation for 20 minutes. We have a conversation about after it for five minutes. They have questions in advance, but, you know, we talk through the questions. I don't allow them to just memorize a script. We like talk through it and I follow up with questions and like probe it. So it's like, I think it's awesome, but I'm able to do that because my class sizes are small and I have that one-on-one time. I could not do that at, you know, University of Oregon with 75 people in a classroom or a hundred people in a classroom. They can do it with 18 in a classroom, right? So just like you're saying, Josh, like, AI is going to wipe out a lot of jobs at the white collar level, blue collar Bitcoin, white collar jobs are the ones that AI is going to take. Lawyers are going to, a lot of lawyers are going to lose jobs. That high end is going to be, it's going to have to be differentiated from what the AI can do. It's going to have to be like bespoke, small scale, hands-on, best of the best, right? And that will remain but a lot of what we do is bullshit and all that's gone. And then the follow-up question is, well, what is everybody going to do then? Like, right. you know what I mean? And then we're kind of back, we're to, back like, to the UBI socialism. We have a social problem on our hands. Yep. Like doctors yeah. wandering the streets. Like it's just a very do. different situation, man, than we've ever seen. Like the whole classical uh, ideologies, uh, the battle between these ideologies is upended by this completely. And Anyone that pretends that they know how this is going to go is completely full of shit or an idiot, I would or say. Or a genius. <laughs> or a genius, yeah. Very small, very small percentage there, I'd say. Yeah, yeah. And I think, do you want to say one more thing on AI? Another thing that's very exciting to me about AI is it uses a lot of computational resources. Uh, it's very computation intensive. For the most part, in training up the neural net and then to a lesser extent, search by search. It's really intensive and the growth rate on this computation is insane. And, you know, we're going to see it's going to 10 X like that. And then it's going to 10 X again. Right. So here's what I love about it as a Bitcoiner. First <laughs> I know of where all, you're going. You know where I'm going. It parallels Bitcoins in so many ways. First of all, when you look at the pushback from the AI people, they're like, well, actually 
it's wrong to talk about how much electricity that AI uses like per search, because most of it's like a fixed cost that happens uh -huh. with training up the net. Like, does that sound familiar? That's like counting Bitcoin's uh, electricity use per transaction. Doesn't make sense. Right. It won't stop people from dividing the total energy by the number of searches. They're going to keep doing it. They're going to keep doing fudding it in the, in the press. And I'm just going to enjoy watching the frustration of that community dealing like mirror hearts. But then also it's a flexible load. So, you know, you can send a search to whatever server farm has cheap electricity around the world. It's a, it's a, it doesn't require low latency, these tasks, right? A lot of computational tasks have to be done right now, but you're sending off something to like for, you know, to create an image from a text. You don't care if that takes two minutes or one minute or where it's done around the world. So you can go to a solar farm in Australia and do something behind meter there and get an image sent back. No problem, right? So that means AI is going to be another flexible load, just like Bitcoin. Uh, not quite as flexible as Bitcoin, nothing is. But all of the debates about whether flexible load is good or bad are going to parallel over there. And we're going to have this, I think, tremendous ally because mm. they're going to be making the same arguments we're making. But unlike us, they won't be written off because yeah. even though a lot of what AI is doing is just complete garbage, people somehow, you know, still think it's valuable. <laughs> so we have a new ally, a new partner in our energy emissions discussion. Uh, it's going to parallel us precisely. And, th and this is also going to pave the way for not discriminating between types of compute that are flexible, because I think AI will want that as well. They're not going to want Elizabeth Warren to rubber stamp every search that comes through as like a socially worthy search and use of electricity. That's insane. So I think, I think it's really good for us on that front. Yeah, man. Um, that, that would dovetail perfectly into us going deep as hell into energy and the freedom of energy markets which I desperately want to do. And as long as you're up for it, we will do in the future. But I'm afraid to ask another question about it for two reasons. First of all, we'll go for another hour and 45 minutes. Secondly, I will pee my pants. Um, <laughs> long night at the firehouse. So I'm just absolutely gorked up on Starbucks. Nice. Troy, this was a freaking blast. Yeah. I'm so glad we had you on here. We, what a pleasure, man. We, Seriously. Uh, fun enough that we're probably going to be presumptuous and round back this afternoon and say, Hey, when do you want to come back on? Because, uh, we, I say this a lot, but I mean, at this time we barely got to <laughs> anything on my yeah, sheet. I mean, we got to almost we nothing honestly on missed what we half these questions at least, but which is fine. They, everything that we had was stellar. It really was absolutely beautiful. Um, well, you yeah, know, when it, you said I, you went to Wheaton, I knew we were going in a different direction than anticipated off the bat there. Yeah. I, I really enjoyed the conversation. It's amazing, isn't it? This is something else like about Christianity and Wheaton in particular. You meet somebody who went to Wheaton, you immediately have a connection. You know all this stuff, and you can, it's in common. And it, it lays the basis for like a real conversation, you know? Not not a bullshitty talking heads. Like if I'm going on like CNN, I'm not going to have a real conversation there. But you're Bitcoiners, and you're a Wheaton person, and so it's like, okay, I have a, common basis 
I know you're had some core of values that cor- corresponds with mine. And I felt like this conversation was just would have been impossible basically if I didn't have the trust that's like, these are tough things to talk about, right? Tough to talk yeah, about. Absolutely. Uh, I appreciate the, the, the generosity of spirit, the open-mindedness to talk about it and the, the basic trust that I felt coming back my way to talk these things through because they're very often, you know, dicey and polarizing. We managed, I think, an honest conversation. Oh, for yeah. sure. Yeah. Couldn't, couldn't agree more. Yeah, um, and we, um, I, I mean, I know I feel like any, anytime, even in disagreements, like you should be able to have a common sense, you know, unperturbed conversation that makes sense and everyone can be amicable about it. Otherwise, what are we doing here? It's la- that is lacking in the world and it is lacking in the Bitcoin community too, for sure. The people that people are unable to have responsible conversations with people that fundamentally disagree with them. And I don't know, hopefully we can do our little part week over week of trying to push the needle on that because, you know, even just the time we spend in this episode talking about socialism, it's a, it's a demonstration. <laughs> uh, it's a demonstration of regardless of how convinced you are on one side or the other, Doggone it. Go seek out the most thoughtful people with a differing perspective. Don't take the straw man approach. Don't blast away the low hanging fruit that that is not the substance of the other side. Go find the responsible people of high character and unpack their arguments. That's the intellectual integrity journey in my view. I really appreciate, really appreciate uh, that you guys went there. And I should say too, I mean, I wouldn't characterize myself as a socialist. <laughs> no, I don't. I don't think we intended that for it to come out that way at all. But you were but just steel manning that position. But I, but I, uh, you know, I've spent my time in Europe, and man, when you go to Norway, uh, and you talk talk to people there, I've, I've given talks at the university in Oslo. Uh, it's pretty nice. The whole childcare situation, the whole uh, education situation, the whole. Well, of course. What makes it possible for them is oil, oil resources, right? So it's not really like you don't really know what you're looking at. Is it just like I'm in an oil state or is this what yeah. socialism looks yeah. like? It's right? just so hard to parse those things out because that's that's something that people bring up and say, well, socialism works great there. But it's like they're sitting on a gold mine. Of course, exactly. everyone's cool. Everyone's exactly. cool when everyone's rich, you know. But but I appreciate that we, we were able to go there, uh, you know, but but. I have found in general, maybe you found this too. When you meet Bitcoiners one-on-one, you have conversations with them. They're pretty much all really gracious, you know, even in disagreement. Some of the people I disagree with, like hard, still extremely gracious to me in person. It, it It's the online uh, distance that allows people to be really, really harsh. You know what I mean? For sure. You know, yeah. I, I, I found... Yeah, if you're listening to this, like this is a reason to go to conferences, actually. You know, it's not about the talks. It's about hanging out with people and meeting people who uh, you, you may have a bone to pick with and uh, go and pick that bone with them. And, and you'll find that they're incredibly uh, open-minded and warm and, and honest. At least that's been my experience in the, in the Bitcoin community. I've been really impressed uh, across the board. Yeah, that's heartwarming. And we also, I mean, there's nothing wrong with pissing off some dogmatic thinking. Like, the, we, we, we love on the show to that's right. 
to frustrate the, the high priests of Bitcoin orthodoxy. And uh, we'll, do, we'll do it again when you come back on, my friend. Awesome, man. Awesome. Thanks, Troy. Thanks so much for listening to the episode, folks. If you're appreciating our content and smelling what we're stepping in here at BCB Pod, here's a couple notes to pay attention to as we close out. First, you can genuinely help us extend our reach by leaving us a review on Apple or your podcast app of choice, as well as subscribing to our Blue Collar Bitcoin YouTube channel, where we post videos of these discussions as well as other shorts. Second, we are live on Podcast 2.0 apps. Our go-to app for listening to pods is Fountain App. Literally get paid sats for just listening to podcasts. There is no catch. You can also stream sats to content creators on the Lightning Network on Fountain, as well as create and share clips with the Fountain community. Go find us on the Fountain app, link down in the show notes. Third, we are active on social media, most predominantly Twitter, at blue underscore collar BTC. We're also on Noster, Instagram, and TikTok. All of these links are on our website, bluecollarbitcoin.io. If you want to get in touch with us, our email is bluecollarbitcoinpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, continue a relentless and open-minded pursuit of knowledge. Take care. Bye.